children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. And as the kids are taking off, I uh, welcome you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, take one out of the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, take it home with you. We have more. Seriously. Uh, Proverbs chapter 24. Page uh, 649, if you're using a pew Bible. Please turn there so you can follow along. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 21 to 22. So we're here in the middle of a study in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And I found it a really great study so far. And one of the things I, I like about it myself is, so, is how uh, applicable the Proverbs are to everyday life. I mean, the Proverbs hit you right where you live. They, they speak directly to us. They're convicting. They're uh, poignant. They pierce us with their direct application to our lives. You know, we've been studying things like lying and telling the truth. Pride and humility. Uh, drinking. We're going to be studying the use of money. Marriage. Uh, relationships. Raising children. I mean, it's all right there in Proverbs. It's all so accessible. Uh, well, uh, it was <laughs> until we came to today's passage. Today we come to a text, and really it represents a group of texts in Proverbs, that rather than seeing current and applicable, it seems kind of far away and distant. Uh, today's text, rather than, than seeming like right off the front pages of the newspaper, today's text is more like going to a museum. You know, you go to a museum and there's some ancient artifact or relic under glass, and you kind of look at it, hmm, you know. Isn't that interesting that they used that kind of artifact way back whenever they lived? And, and it seems, it's a kind of intellectually note that that was an interesting thing. But it doesn't really have anything to do with life today and we kind of move on. And there's sometimes we read the Bible and we feel that way. We say, well, what is this? What does it have to do with anything? And I don't, I don't even get it. I don't know how to get from here to there. And I think this is one of those passages today which at first glance appears that way but I believe upon further digging, has a profound relevance to life in 21st century, modern America, New England, Hingham. And so uh, today's text is about how to relate to kings. Kings, monarchs. So look at verse 21. It says, Fear the Lord and the king, my son, and do not join with the rebellious. For those two will send sudden destruction upon them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. So here we have a Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 21, telling us that we need to fear the Lord and the King so that we don't fall underneath some kind of calamity. And what do you do with that? And like I said, this isn't the only passage in Proverbs that has to do with how to relate to monarchs. Uh, if, if you just put a bookmark here in Proverbs 24, we're going to keep coming back to it. But look, uh, turn back to Proverbs chapter 20. Let me just give you a couple for instances. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8. Proverbs 20 has a series of commands directed to kings, how kings should behave. It says in 28, When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Well, look at verse 26. A wise king winnows out the wicked. He drives the threshing wheel over them. Or verse 28, Love and faithfulness keep a king safe. Through love his throne is made secure. Or uh, turn back just one more, for instance, at uh, Proverbs chapter 16. 
Verse 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. When a king's face brightens, it means life. His favor is like a rain cloud in spring. <clears throat> and we could go on. I, I haven't even scratched the surface. There's a host, a score of texts in Proverbs about how kings should behave and how we should relate to kings. So again I ask, what does this have to do with the real world? I mean, how, how, do you, how do we apply a text like this? Do we say, well, we, we generally extrapolate it out and say, this is telling us to respect government leaders. I mean, maybe that's the application that God has for us today. And, and uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that's one application, but if you go back to chapter 24, verse 21, it seems to be there's more to it than that, doesn't it? Fear the Lord and the King, my son. Do not join with the rebellious. Now, we know from our study in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is a theologically loaded idea. Fearing the Lord is, it means to reverence Him, almost to worship Him. And now the King is joined with the Lord. So now we fear the Lord. We know what that means in Proverbs. That's heavy. And the King. And so, yeah, I think we should respect our government leaders, but it seems to me that Proverbs is saying something more. So what, again, what do we do with this? Because in America, we don't have a king. We did have a king. We gave him the boot. His name was George III. And we had it up to here, 230 years ago. And we ain't had a king since. <laughs> my, my, uh, my daughter, um, just this week, was uh, studying for an essay exam in school. And she had to write an essay on why did the colonists revolt. And so she wrote this essay about you know, the Stamp Act and the Intolerable Acts and the Boston Tea Party. And you know, I'm reading this thing and I'm starting to get fired up again. I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right. Don't mess with America, right? And, and I'm like, yeah, we don't have a king. And, and I realized, wow, even I've been programmed as an American just to have a very negative reaction to the idea of a monarchy, of a king. Like, no, 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 we're Americans. We don't have that. And think about our entire system of government. Our founders, at the very core of the Constitution, one of its fundamental DNA kind of principles is the separation of powers. Whereas a monarch, legislative, executive, and judicial powers are bound up in a person. You know, we said, no, no, no. Executives here, judicials here, legislative there. Even the legislature, it's going to be bicameral. There's going to be a more uh, deliberative Senate. There's going to be a more populist kind of house. So that way, nobody has all the power. And even the people we put in place, we're going to vote for them. So that the power is all dispersed. So, you know, the very framework of our kind of political consciousness is independence, freedom, uh, voting, separation of powers. So again I ask, like, what do we do with all this king stuff? It, it's so foreign to our way of thinking if we really uh, think about it. Do we just say, well, that's an interesting verse underneath that display glass in the museum and those unenlightened people back then had kings and well, too bad, but I guess that's a verse for them. But it doesn't really have anything to us today. Or is this God's word or not? Well, I believe this is profoundly applicable today. But to understand it, the first thing we have to know is what this verse meant to the people back then. Alright, Biblical Interpretation 101. When you come to part of the Bible you just don't get, first rule of interpretation is not to ask the question, what does this verse mean to me and how do I feel about it? That's the last question you ask in the process of biblical interpretation. The first question you ask in the process is, what did it mean when it was originally written, in this case like 3,000 years ago? 
What was the worldview and grammar and history and uh, cultural context where these words were written? And we have to ask, what did a king mean back then? Because even probably our notions of a king differ from what they meant by a king back then. So let me just sort of, we're going to take a little bit deeper dive this morning into some of these Old Testament texts than we usually do. And then we're going to eventually try to start there, what did it mean then, and then bring it to today. So uh, what did a king mean back then? And I think a fundamental concept that would probably be lost on us, that we have to understand, is that kings in the ancient world were viewed as tightly associated with the gods or God or however their religious belief system was. So, for instance, in Egypt, the pharaoh was considered divine. That's why they built the big pyramids to him, because they were gods and they needed a godlike uh, burial monument. Or you think in Babylon, uh, you had the, the king of Babylon and their chief god of their pantheon was called Marduk. And Marduk was believed to have adopted and divinized the king of Babylon so that the king was worshipped. Or even, you know, roll forward uh, half a millennia to the Roman Empire. No sooner did they have a Caesar and move to an imperial type structure that the imperial cult began and they began to worship Caesar as a god. And when we look at Israel's understanding of the king, it's similar but not identical to those kinds of thoughts. In Israel's mindset, the king was the earthly representative and executor of the heavenly throne. That's what the Israelites believed. So Israel believed in a king. The true king was God. Israel believed that he was the great king, not just the king of Israel, but that God was the king of all the nations of the earth, that he alone was the great God, and that all the nations of the world were beneath him. And he had a king in place, and that king uh, of Israel was, in a sense, again, the earthly representative of the heavenly king. And so his job was to execute the heavenly king's will on earth. So you can see he was closely associated, but the Israelites didn't go so far as to divinize their king. They didn't say, oh, King David, you're God, and so we bow down to you. It was, it was uh, ruthlessly monotheistic. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, is the basic uh, confession of a faithful Jew. And so David was not a God, but he was so closely associated with a God that he was as if uh, he was the executor of the God. So um, to disobey the king or to revolt against the king would be a way of revolting against God in the ideal situation. That was how God had set it up originally. Um, let me give you some other examples of this. Put a bookmark again here in Proverbs 24. Turn back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy just to kind of get us a flavor for their way of thinking about kingship. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's on page 189 in the Pew Bible. This passage in Deuteronomy was probably written around 1400s, maybe 1440s B.C., just to kind of put it in historical perspective. This is uh, Moses and the Israelites. They're on the very edge of the Promised Land. They're about to go in. This is about 400 years before the first king of Israel. But God knew it was coming. He made provision for it. So it says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us have set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. So again, God is going to choose the king. This is not just a popular election. 
God says, I'm going to show you who I want it to be because this person is going to be the earthly representative of the heavenly throne. He's going to execute the law of God. And notice how this king is supposed to behave. Verse 16, here's what he's not supposed to do. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So unlike the kings of the nations around them who use their divine power uh, to live large, the king of Israel is not supposed to live large. He's not supposed to pimp his chariot out with, you know, spinning rims and a subwoofer. And he's not supposed to, you know, be decked out in, in bling and, and have, you know, huge pools and palatial places to live with huge harems. That's kind of the typical king-like behavior. No, no, that's not Israel's king. Instead, what is he supposed to do? Look at verse 18. It says, When he takes the throne of his kingdom... He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Check that out. So first day in office, instead of raising taxes or you know, fixing up the chariot or whatever kings normally do, He's supposed to go into a room with a piece of paper and a pencil or quill or whatever they had and sit down and copy by hand his own copy of God's law. That's the most important thing. So that then he studies it. He has his own personal copy. You know, they didn't have Barnes and Nobles. You know, having a book was kind of a, a, a treat. And so he has his own copy. This is his real treasure of the law. And when he has spare time and he's sitting around, he's supposed to be going, reading the law of God. So that all the days of his life, his role will be to carry out the law of God. And when cases come before the king to be judged, because remember the king was executive, legislative, and judicial all wrapped into one. When cases come before him, he's using at his, as his basis of law, the law of God that he's been reading ever since he became king. So he's just saturated with the will and knowledge of God and that is what informs and directs him. So that again, he is the executor of the heavenly throne here on earth. Or let me uh, then give you another example. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Just one more example of how they viewed the king. Psalm chapter 2, it's on page uh, 532. So because the earthly king was a representative of the heavenly throne, that's why you have to fear the king. Because to rebel against the king is to rebel against the God who stands behind the king and who has the king. It says in Psalm 2, this is uh, believed by many scholars to be a, an enthronement psalm, a psalm that was particularly sung when a new king was coronated. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers, uh, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. The anointed one is the king. Because in those days, in Israel, how did they signify the king? Who was to be the king? What did they do? They anointed him with oil. So that's how they said this is the king as a prophet would come directed by God and he would pour oil on the head of the king and as it ran down the king's head, that was a symbol of really the Holy Spirit choosing and empowering that person to be king. Uh, By the way, does anyone here know what the Hebrew word for anointing is? 
It's Mashiach, Mashiach, Messiah. Messiah just means anointed king. Can you guess what the Greek word for anointing is? It's Christos, Christ. So it's just, when we say Jesus Christ, it's not like his last name was Christ. It's not like it was Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and they got married. You know, it's Mary and Joseph. In fact, the way they designated themselves was they would say Mary, son of, or daughter of, or, or Joseph, son of. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying it's really a title. And we say it's Jesus the Christ, the King, the anointed Messiah is where that name comes from. And so why, it says, do, uh, why do the rulers of the world fight against the Lord and His King? There they are associated again. Verse 3, going back to Psalm 2. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I've installed my King on Zion, my holy hill. Don't mess with my King. You're revolting against my King. You're revolting against me. Verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Now here's, the King is telling you what God has said to him. He said to me, You are my Son. And today I've become your father. By the way, do you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit came down. Not, not a symbolic anointing of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit came down in him like a dove. And what did the voice say from heaven? You are my son. Interesting. He said, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, and again, here's Proverbs 24 echoed right here. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, that's the king, lest he be angry. And you'll be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So again, to revolt against the King is to revolt against God, who has appointed the King as His representative on earth. This is why, in the story of King David, some of you know that story, and King Saul, you know, they had a bad relationship. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he kind of went, went south. He didn't obey the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to raise up another king. And He anointed King David. King Saul didn't like that. So King Saul made it his mission to exterminate King David and he hunted him in the desert and David had to live as a fugitive. And on a couple of occasions, uh, David had the opportunity to kill King Saul. He sort of snuck into his camp and had him at his mercy. And he could have killed King Saul in revenge. And you might say, well, yeah, he should have done it because King Saul was a lousy king. And David was anointed anyway to be the next king, so maybe King David was the guy to kill King Saul. But remember what King David said? He says, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. He says, I will not touch the king. I don't care how bad he is. It is not my place to attack the person that God has put in place as his representative. That's God's business. And if God wants me to be king, then God's going to do it in his time. But it's not going to be my, my power and my strength. <clears throat> and so to revolt against the king is to revolt against God. And I think that story of Saul and David brings up another interesting point, which is that, yeah, this is the ideal but no earthly king ever lived up to that ideal. So there's the ideal set forth in Scripture that the earthly king like David represents the heavenly king. But in reality, no king of Israel ever fulfilled it. They always had failings. They always had shortcomings. 
So you'd love to see the king really be God's representative on earth, but he never is. They always have all these problems. Some of the kings of Israel were just utter disasters. Even King David had his faults, didn't he? You think of King David, the man after God's own heart? King David's kind of the gold standard against which all the other kings are compared. There's this phrase later on in the Bible when other kings come along. It'll say, so-and-so was king and he reigned this many years and he was righteous and he walked in the ways of his father, David. Or it says, he was a wicked king. He did not walk in the ways of his father, David. So David is kind of like the idealized gold standard king for how all the kings should behave. And yet think about David's life. It was a mess at some parts. Think about what he did. Remember the whole Bathsheba thing? That whole thing? He, he uses his power to, to have an affair with another man's wife. And then he tries to cover it up because she gets pregnant. So what does he do? He, he brings the, her husband home from war. He's out of war fighting for David. And he brings him home and gets him intoxicated so that maybe he'll be with his wife and cover up the pregnancy. And that doesn't work because that guy has so much integrity. He says, you know what, as long as my brothers are out fighting the battlefield, I'm going to live a warrior's life until the war is over. I'm not going to enjoy the comforts of home. And so he doesn't. And so David's like, what do I do? So David gives an order to have this guy killed in battle and have it covered up. And this guy gets killed and then David takes his wife and marries her. I mean, it's like Jerry Springer episode. I mean, it's, it's just vile. If you were hiring a senior pastor for the church, or another pastor, and you said, well, you know, tell us about yourself. How, you know, you're married, that's good. How'd you meet your wife? Well, this is a woman I had, you know, had an inappropriate relationship with, and I had her husband killed so I could marry her. You know, so, would you hire the guy? <laughs> like, you know, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> no! And yet this was the king who, who was the gold standard for how kings should behave. I mean, look at his life so broken, so broken in so many ways. And so you look at the kings of Israel, and yeah, that's the ideal, but none of them live up to it. And as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. Until finally, God just says, done. And he sends the Assyrians and then subsequently the Babylonians to take out Israel, and he judges them. And then the line of David is completely cut off. David has no king on the throne. I say, you're like, God, you know, what, what are you doing? Where's your king? Have you been defeated, God? Have you been outfoxed by the nations? Are, have your plans come to naught? What are you doing, God? Aren't you going to bring about your kingdom on earth? All this stuff we read about in Psalm 2, about you ruling in righteousness over the nations, is that just all gone? Is that just a bunch of propaganda? Where's the plan, God? And so there begins to emerge. It's like a whisper at first. These little intimations in the Bible that God still has a plan. That there's still a king coming. Another Messiah, but this time like with a capital M. Another Christ, but with a capital C. The Messiah, the Christ. And it's kind of quiet at first, but it begins to sort of build in the Old Testament. It mainly comes through the prophets. The prophets are the ones who bring this message. And, and it's this hope that someday God is going to raise up a king who will fulfill all that the king is supposed to be. Uh, let me give you two texts, for instance. We could spend all morning just looking at prophetic texts about the Messiah. It's an amazing study. But let me just point out two of them. One is uh, Isaiah chapter 6, or rather chapter 9. It's on page 683. This one you've probably heard before. Then I'm going to show you another one you might not have heard before. 
The first one's Isaiah chapter 9, page 683. Two texts that speak about this coming Messiah, this coming King. Now this is a Christmas one. You hear this one at Christmas. It's part of Handel's Messiah. You probably have heard this text. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Haven't you got Christmas cards with that on the front of it? Right? There's a little nativity scene and then that verse is quoted underneath. Those are great cards. But it goes on. The government will be on his shoulders. Oh, he's going to be a king. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'll stop right there. Four names. Notice something about them. First thing I notice is that these are the names of the kind of ruler that my heart desperately wants to follow. Like that, that's, where is that? Can I vote for that guy in this presidential election? I, I want to find a wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace. Like that's the kind of person I want to draw my sword and hold it up before him and swear fealty to him and say, I will follow you to the death to the ends of the earth. That's the kind of leader my heart wants to follow. But notice the second thing about those names is that tucked in the middle of them are names which, frankly, no human being could ever aspire to in Israelite worldview. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So a child will be born, a human, who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Like, whoa, time out, what? This... Okay, some of you, maybe some of you are raised in Jewish homes. Maybe some of you have, have done some study about Israelite culture, Hebrew culture. You know how radically monotheistic it is. I mean, that's the whole essence of, of Judaism is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. That's the basic confession of Judaism and of, of the Israelites down through the centuries. There's one God. So we're talking now about some guy who's going to be called Mighty God. I mean, that just is so bizarre. Who is this? What kind of person is this? And then he goes in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Yes, that's what I want. Justice and righteousness in my leaders. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Notice that he reigns forever. How can he reign forever? What does that mean? Or look at the second prophecy, just one more. This is one you may not have heard. It's Jeremiah 23. It's on page uh, 773 if you're using the Pew Bible. Jeremiah 23. Another prophecy from another prophet. The whispers of God's plan coming out of the mouths of the prophets. Slowly issuing forth. And you'll notice in... uh, Well, chapter 23 begins the first four verses is a scathing indictment of Israel's current leaders. The people who are just blowing it big time. And then, verse 5, comes the prophecy. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. So think of King David's line and his lineage as a tree that through judgment has been lopped off. And there's no more king of Israel. There's just a stump where it used to be. Well, God says someday I'm going to make a branch pop out. Something's going to happen. Just like an old stump that you think is dead and then one spring there's a shoot on the side. I'm going to bring a shoot out from this stump. A righteous branch. A righteous branch is coming. A king who will reign wisely 
and do what is just and right in the land. In His days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Again, that's the king I want. That's the leader I want. Someone who's just and right, who reigns wisely. Not someone who takes bribes. Not someone who's a hypocrite. Not someone who's a political animal. I want a righteous and just leader. And then you get this. Look at the end of verse 6. This is the name by which he will be called. What's his name? The Lord. In other words, Yahweh, the personal name of God, our righteousness. Like, huh? I thought he was a descendant of King David, but now you're calling him Yahweh, which is the personal name of God? Like, what is this? Who is this king? What kind of person could this be? I mean, you know, where does this come from? And as I said, I think my heart yearns for that kind of king. You don't have to have ever read the Old Testament or have even cracked the Bible or frankly even be a Christian, I think, to, to have that desire within you that, that there would be a righteous leader. We've all had leaders in our lives. Some have been good, some have been bad, but none have been perfect. They've always failed us in some way. Our parents are the first leaders God gives us and, and our, our parents fail us. I know I fail as a parent in different ways. And then we have coaches and we have Cub Scout leaders. And we have teachers at school that we really respect and admire. And then one day they say this or they do that. And we go, oh, I didn't know they would do that. And we're disappointed. And it continues on into uh, adolescence. And we have uh, captains of football teams and professors in school and business leaders, priests, pastors, presidents, governors, people that we campaign for them and we, we spend long hours trying to get them elected and then they get into office and they flake out on us. And we're like, oh, where's the ruler that I'm waiting for? Where's this person? All right. I was at the gym uh, working out on, just yesterday and I was warming up on one of the, you know, the elliptical things that make you go like, mm-hmm. those, those weird machines. And, uh, and next to me was um, a guy I know from my neighborhood and I saw him like, hey, how you doing? And you know, he had his head, his iPod in, and he's like, hey, I'm like, yeah, what are you listening to? Oh, I'm listening to some ACDC. I'm like, oh, cool, what's going on? You know, just sort of small talk kind of stuff. And I'm like, what are you thinking about here? He goes, oh, I'm thinking about the election. I'm like, really? I'm like, who are you going to vote for? Because that's my problem. I don't know. He's like, and he started going through the list of major candidates. He's like, I like this one because of this, but not that. I like this one because of this and not that, and this one because of this. And he's like, I don't know who to vote for. He goes, the guy I really want to vote for is not even running, and all this stuff. And he goes, I don't know what to do. So I figured I'd just throw one out there, you know. I, I figured I'd just kind of, you know, throw in the little talk about God little curveball. I said, you know, I'll tell you what I'm excited about. He goes, what? I said, a monarchy. <laughs> so he like looked at me, and he's put the iPod back in. Just kept going, so, swinging a miss. But you know, hey. And just so you know, when I try to do evangelism, that's typically how it works for me. I just, I try something and it doesn't go anywhere. And I'm like, well, I put it out there anyway. The monarchy, I want that king. I want this king ruling over us. And the, it is here, that the biblical storyline that we've been kind of tracing and the yearning of our own hearts coalesce. It is, it is here that that everything God has promised and everything that we instinctively know should be but never is in any leader we've ever seen comes together, coalesces, and finds fulfillment. And so we proclaim today that that King has come. 
And that His name is Jesus the Christ. And that's why we're here. That's why we're in church. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. What's this whole Palm Sunday thing? Why are we here? Is it to procure a piece of tropical foliage so we can go home and go, and put it somewhere in the house and watch it turn brown over the next year? Nothing wrong with that. But what's the point of that? What, What does it symbolize? Why is the Palm Sunday there? And it's to remind us that He's the King. Because on that Palm Sunday that we read in our opening Scripture reading, remember Palm Sunday is the day Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And as King Jesus rides in, the people come out to celebrate Him. And they don't have a red carpet. So what do they use for a carpet? Their coats. They take off their robes and they lay them down in front of the King. They don't have ticker tape. They don't have fireworks, so they cut palm branches. <laughs> and as he comes, they wave the palm branches over him. And they're celebrating and they're cheering. The king is here. Hosanna, the king has come back. And they're worshiping the king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself assumed that title of king. He was, he is the God man. You know, this whole idea that Jesus is divine. Sometimes people say, yeah, the church made that up about 300 years after Jesus. This whole myth about Jesus evolved. No, baloney. It was embedded in the prophecies 700 years before Christ ever came that He was going to be a God-man. And He's come and He fulfills all of those hopes and all of those promises of the Old Testament. And I believe that, my friends, is how Proverbs 24 most directly applies to us today with profound significance is not just respect your government leaders, though we should do that. But the point of Proverbs 24 is fear the Lord and the King. And I believe the command to us is very simple. Fear the Lord and the King, Jesus. If this prophecy was true of the kings of Israel who were merely the shadows, how much more so true is it of King Jesus who is the fulfillment of all those hopes? How much more so does this proverb apply to us than it did to those people way back then? And so we have Jesus proclaimed as King. And so I believe that uh, the application for us is a renewed call this Easter to submit ourselves before the kingship of Jesus. I believe that we as Christians here at South Shore Baptist Church, we need to take off our, our coats, as it were, and lay them down before Christ. And once again, lay our lives before Jesus and say, You are the King. And I need to lay it all down for you. That What it means to be a Christian is to surrender my life to the King. My money, my time, my interests, my mind, my relationships, my, my children, perhaps resentment and unforgiveness and anger I have in my heart about whatever, issues I have, things I'm concerned about. To be a Christian means we lay them at the feet of Jesus to make a royal red carpet for Him to come into our lives. And to follow Him. Being a Christian means following King Jesus. What's the most basic confession of the Christian faith? The basic confession of Judaism is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We affirm that. The basic confession of Christianity is, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And I believe one of the reasons um, the American church in my own life, too, as American Christian, is so anemic and so powerless at times, is because we don't proclaim the kingship of Jesus. We affirm Jesus as helper, Jesus as physician, 
Jesus as meter of my needs. Jesus as healer of my hurts emotionally. And you know what? He does all that. But at the center, we've missed the center. The central proclamation of Jesus was the kingdom of God has come and He's the King. And, and having Him at the center as King reorients all those other things so that we have Christ as King. And, and I wonder, have we imbibed that American spirit in the church? Have we taken our political views and our understanding of how we should be governed as humans and transferred it into the religion and, and say that somehow we vote for Jesus? You know, well, if, if I decide to elect Him today or maybe not today, maybe I'll go into office today and then He can have a turn tomorrow. But as Christians, we say, no, He's the King. And so being a Christian means surrendering our lives, laying them down. And so I just want to challenge myself and all of us as we enter into Holy Week to orient our minds again. And to say, as I go into this Holy Week, it's not just about Easter, yay, but it's King Jesus has come. He's come. Could it be that the church is so anemic today because we've taken to preaching a gospel message that proclaims Jesus as Savior but denies Him as Lord? Have we so painted Jesus as a Savior, like, yeah, you should believe in Jesus, because you know what? He'll help you, and He'll give you joy, He'll give you happiness, He'll help you with your marriage, He'll help you with your finances. And, you know, can Jesus do all those things? Yes. But, but you know, we've kind of portrayed Jesus as like this whimpering beggar. It's like, please believe in me, please. I'll help you, I'll make your life better. Please believe in me, I need someone to believe in me. You know? How about Jesus as King commanding all nations to repent and believe. How about that? How about Jesus offering amnesty to a world full of insurgents who have rebelled against Him? And that today is the day of salvation, and it's not going to be forever. And so there is a window of opportunity for we, the, the gorillas, the insurgency who have revolted against the king, we have a window of opportunity to come in, to lay down our arms, and to kneel and swear fealty to the king again, and to surrender ourselves before him. I think that's a different posture for evangelism. You know, yeah, Jesus is Savior, but saves us from what? What's he saving me from? Jesus saves, you see on a bumper sticker. From what? From the wrath of the king. And, and so therefore... To receive that salvation, I have to say I have disobeyed the King and I need His forgiveness and clemency and His pure mercy in my life because I can't pay Him back. I've been a rebel. I've been a rebel. You know? It says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we have a King who can save because that Jesus, remember, who came down the hill on Palm Sunday amid shouts of of acclamation, riding on a donkey. He then went into the city and five days later came out the other side. And now he was no longer being borne by a donkey. Instead, he was bearing a cross. And instead of shouting, Hail the King, they were now screaming and taunting. And Jesus went up a hill on the other side, the hill of Calvary. And there he was nailed to the cross to absorb that punishment that we deserve for being rebels. And praise God, the story didn't end there. They put him in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's ascended at the Father's right hand. And there he sits waiting until he shall return to judge the living and the dead. That's the whole story. And so we proclaim a Messiah who can save us. Who is a King as well as a Savior. And so I just challenge you and challenge myself this Holy Week to surrender our lives afresh to Jesus. 
to just maybe take some time this afternoon and be like, God, what am I holding back from you? What things, what attitudes, sometimes just stuff in our hearts that we don't want to lay down to God. What, 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 what uh, things are you calling me to do that I won't do? You know, it's like, God, I've given you 98% of my life. Aren't you happy? Nope. I want the 2%. Why? Because I'm the king. And the king has it all. And to know that there's such joy and freedom in real life in laying ourselves down before the king to lay it before him and to say, Lord, it's all yours. What is it that God is challenging you to do this Easter and me to do as we prepare for the coming of the King?